Now then, he talks about uh, the weapons that are going to be used and what happens to them in verse 9. They that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, and they shall burn them with fire for seven years. And then it says, uh, verse 10, so that they shall take not a wood out of the field, nor cut down any out of the forests, you know, those lovingly planted trees. For they shall burn the weapons with fire, and they shall spoil those who spoiled them, and rob those that robbed them, says the Lord. All right, now how can they burn modern weapons? That's another place where people have uh, faulted the prophecy. But actually, if, if you look through uh, Ezekiel here, he talks about them carrying bows and arrows, swords and bucklers, and so on. Now, people say that, that makes it invalid. He's not talking about our times. Now, there are two, two ways of answering, I think. Uh, first, uh, if there is no oil, there are no metal weapons. And that's the end of that, really. Man, man may stop using machines if he has to, but he won't stop making war, unfortunately. He just won't stop fighting. It's too much in our nature. Or if oil is running short and a soldier is in the field with a rifle, if that rifle jams and he has a bayonet, he'll be glad to have it, and he'll become a man with a spear then. Now, bows and arrows might be uh, termed for missiles and, and rockets, uh, uh, launchers, uh, this kind of thing, too, looking over on the, the other side of it. And they may be burned in a different way, not, not burned like we burn wood, but burned with acetylene and so on, just to destruct them, to get them out of the way. I bet some are left, like, like the, uh, I described to you the uh, armored personnel carriers and the trucks and so on that are left exactly where they were uh, hit in the 1948 war, painted with rust proofer and left so that the people could see how hard the, the land was to get. You see it all along the roads in Israel. But uh, it'll take seven years, it says, verse 9. Uh, they'll burn them with fire for seven years, and uh, seven months to bury the dead, seven years to destruct these weapons. And this, too, argues for the beginning of the tribulation for this particular war. Uh, we give uh, several reasons in the book uh, why we don't see it as a part of Armageddon. We see it way before that. And, uh, well, one of them, just off the top of my head, the... Uh, the king of the north in Armageddon and Gog seem quite different. Gog, first of all, is from the uttermost north. Then the king of the north and the king of the south have an alliance, and it sounds, uh, by the context, much more local, uh, like Syria and Egypt, uh, not like Russia and Ethiopia and that big a scope involving Eastern Europe and Libya and everyone. And this seven years is suggestive of that. The land is finally purified at the end of seven years. That's just time enough that the Lord returns, you see, if it's at the beginning of the tribulation. And it makes a logical scenario this way. Uh, let's say the rapture comes tonight, and tomorrow Russia invades Israel somehow. The Allies come along and everything. All right, th that invasion is over. I don't know how many hours that invasion takes, but it's not a long invasion. We don't read about any battles. And we read that they fall on the open fields. They don't seem to even get into the land, into the cities or anything. That's over almost at once, and Israel is, of course, spared and victorious. But they will have had a shock. No doubt about that. And uh, that's a good time for the Antichrist to step forward and say, look, you need protection. You know, you were lucky this time. Uh, I can help you, and so on, and make his peace covenant with them for seven years. 
And uh, in this time, they'll be they'll bury those dead, they'll burn the weapons, and so on. After three and a half years, he'll go into the uh, the temple, which they will have built the tribulation temple, and declare himself God. And you know what happens from there. He doesn't bring them peace at all. He brings them war like they never knew, <laughs> Armageddon. But then the Lord returns, just seven years after the beginning of the tribulation period, and. Uh, uh, starts the kingdom and then all Israel is saved it would be fitting that the land is cleansed completely and the last weapons destructed and uh, the land is pure again after the terrible invasion it, uh, it argues for it but I must say that uh, people have placed this Russian invasion just everywhere in the tribulation right in Armageddon right at the midpoint before the tribulation I thought I heard somebody place it at the end of a thousand years. <laughs> it's a little hard to place it. You get all these prophets and you put them on a chart and, uh, and, and you try to make their prophecies work together. They will work together, you know. If it weren't the word of God, we'd expect to find hundreds of disagreements. If it were just some poetry like some people say it is, we'd find plenty of disagreements when they get down to cases like this. But there are no real disagreements. This invasion is hard to place in the scenario because it just temptingly we don't quite know enough. It, it makes me think though, if we knew just a few more things, we could really warn Israel. We tried, <coughs> I went over there and I talked to them for, for one, and they have political scientists and they have guys they call Sovietologists who are experts on Russian thinking. And nobody really thinks Russia's really going to invade Israel over there. Now I told you yesterday, I talked with General Sharon's uh, private secretary. General Sharon was the tank commander who surrounded the Egyptian army in the Yom Kippur War. Right when Russia decided there really should be a ceasefire, we should all live like brothers, you know. When the Egyptians were encircled and the Syrians were pushed almost back to Damascus, Big Daddy came in and stopped the fight like with, with the neighborhood bully, you know. Uh, his daddy's always on the scene in case anything goes wrong. But, but um, at that point, um, Sharon was, was really in command there in the Sinai. Well, I talked to his private secretary, and he ought to know something, and she knows him pretty well. And she said, and she was a, a full captain or something. When I say she, don't picture an American secretary. You better picture a, a gal about six foot with red hair and a machine gun in her hand. <laughs> And she said that they didn't dream of such a thing. Uh, that's impossible. Russia was not going to invade Israel. Trouble, yes, politics and so on, but Russia has a respect for the might of the United States, she said uh, a year ago. And uh, uh, the United States is extremely strong, and, and uh, uh, there's a balance. There just is. That's reality. And what would Russia get out of invading Israel anyhow? You know, without an appreciation that Israel really is the crown jewel of the Middle East. Israel happens to stand in the way of communist expansion. You look on a world globe and they've spread out in every direction. The only direction they're having trouble with is to their southwest where they had to jump over Israel. They do fine with the Syrians, they do fine with the Egyptians, they do fine with the poor Africans that are just learning what it's all about. They go in there and evangelize and make communists out of everybody quite easy. Where they can't make communists out of them, they get them using their weapons and their technology, and little by little they, they seduce them into an alliance. But they have got no place with Israel. In 1948, they recognized Israel. And they thought those 
farms, those kibbutzes, were socialist and, and would, you know, turn communistic. They were like the co cooperative farms in, in Russia, they thought. You know, but they, they didn't know the Jews very well. Uh, <laughs> they, they, are, they are communal, uh, which is a different thing than communistic. They, everybody shares, but they really do share. You don't have a bunch of gangsters on the top who share more than everybody else, you know. We were on a commune, and, and, and uh, they were talking about, if, if you want to get a washing machine, that's fine. If you could save up the money, you only need to do two things. Save up the money and wait till everyone in the commune has one. Uh, <laughs> everybody in the block has the same thing. It's not exactly our way of doing things, but it works, and, and it's hardly communistic. Uh, their theory is nobody on the block has anything. Uh, <laughs> No, they're, they're doing better economically, actually, and, and it should be so they've come a long way. But it's not the same thing at all. Communism is atheistic, first of all. And the rights of the individual are written off. You, you just don't have any. Uh, you're not an individual. You're part of the state machine. This is the opposite in Israel. The individual farmer has a vote for sure. And, and uh, the, the smallest child overrules anyone at a kibbutz if, if, uh, if, if they tip the vote. You know, it's one man, one vote. You remember... Yvonne and we went, we went to, to, uh, through a kibbutz, Shargalan, and we came to the nursery, and we were walking with the Mukhtar, uh, the, the master, the leader. He was a man distinguished in, in uh, military service, uh, in government, and in farming. To get a title like this, it's like, it's like Eagle Scout, only on a professional level. He was uh, a marvelous uh, soldier. He worked with the intelligence. He ran the kibbutz. He was a, a, just, just a fully accomplished man, and he was taking us on a tour, and we came to the nursery, and he tapped lightly on the door, and about a 10-year-old girl opened the door and admonished him for knocking because the babies were sleeping and threw us all out. <laughs> it's one man, one vote. And, and <laughs> you could imagine uh, what would happen in the same situation in Russia if you were with the, the police chief and decided to see the nursery. <laughs> Well, anyway, they recognized him in 1948, but then they started to like the Arabs better uh, because they couldn't get into Israel. Israel knew much better than that. They didn't make any alliances. They didn't accept any goods. No, thank you. We'll do our own technician work and our own inventing and our own factory building, and they did, and they did real well. And every time there's a war, you can see who did it better, uh, the guys who borrow or the guys who do it on their own. And uh, so now Russia has really come out against Israel. And, and there's just no similarity. Well, let's see where we are in Ezekiel. I can just go on about that, can't I? As, as I see you leaving in the back there, I'll come to a close. <laughs> all right, after all this gory stuff about the, uh, the burying and everything, God finally uh, gives the reasons that he did this whole demonstration. Uh, look at verse 21. I will set my glory among the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. That's sort of reason number two. And thirdly, uh, the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they trespassed against me. Therefore hid I my face from them, and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them, and he hid my face from them. He says he did it on purpose, and remember, he warned them. Ezekiel acted this out for them. They saw this, and they heard him predict all this. All right? But he says after he will have mercy. And uh, 
And verse 26, after that they have borne their shame and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me, when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid, when I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, this is clearly a reference to 1948, and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. And listen to this promise. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. And the very next chapter, out from chapter 40 to 48, describes the marvelous millennial temple to be built by Christ when he returns and rules from the land of Israel. Just the juxtaposition of these things shows us Israel's agonies are over with the Russian invasion. That's it. Armageddon will happen in their land, but the Lord will come and put a stop to it. This is the last punishment of Israel, and as he explains, it's so, first, the heathen can see that he's God, second, so that the house of Israel will know that he's God and he's still active, and third, so that the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity and came out as part of God's plan. As if to say, I'm going to explain to the whole world who I am and what I've done. History will be clear for the first time. And, and God that God is there and that he acts will be clear to everybody. That's quite a demonstration to stage, but just picture for a moment, uh, supposing you're a troop from Russia or Czechoslovakia or somewhere, suppose you're part of that invasion. Suppose you're one of the lucky one in six and you're spared. You'll have a lot of questions to ask. You know, how did this happen to us? Uh, <laughs> for sure. Uh, if there's a Bible someplace, if this book is floating around someplace, then, you know, it will be part of it, as I said, became a history book. All of it will be a history book when that happens. And anybody in that battle can read this, or more preferably read this, the Bible, and see that this was, this was God. And you can't mess around with Israel. And you can't defeat Israel. That will never happen. God said they're as strong as, as, as creation, virtually. Look in Jeremiah 31, 36, and 37. He says, when you can tell him how the sun is hung and how he laid the foundations of the earth, then he'll turn his back on Israel. <laughs> but you can't destroy Israel. When that soldier reads that Bible or understands that prophecy, he really will know the Lord, won't he? There will be a heathen with a real sure knowledge of God. And would you, having seen five beside you fall, having seen fire and brimstone down from heaven, having understood all that, would you say, I refuse to believe? Maybe this is a mission by God. I mean, a mission like missionaries have. Because the church will be gone, I believe. There will be few to witness at that point. It'll be right at the beginning of the tribulation. Many Jews have to be saved to make up the 144,000 who will evangelize, and maybe they'll be saved by this means. That says there, they'll sure, they'll sure know God was there. They would have been prepared for certain death, and suddenly they went. And among those heathen, people will still be able to see God then. That'll be a testimony to them. This is, uh, from this prophecy, I extrapolate, we really ought to be sending Bibles to Russia and the rest of it. Because they're the ones that are going to get it, you know. And uh, it's not Israel that should be afraid, but Russia. When people talk about the Russian invasion of Israel, Russia should tremble. Um, and, and if they have the word of God, they will get out of this what God wants them to that he will testify to the heathen. Israel, of course, will realize it. And finally, the heathen will realize a most important lesson that Israel, God's chosen people, went into captivity for their irreverence. God knew very well. He gathered them out 
and uh, he restored them in the land and he protected them. And after this particular show of, of uh, divine power and wrath, he will never again hide his face from them. And then that turns out true. At the end of the tribulation, all Israel is saved, Romans 11:26, and all of those Jews join us in the kingdom, and, uh, and they're with us for eternity. It becomes the world's first Christian nation. I repeated that Sunday, you know more fully the meaning of that uh, tonight as we study this. Uh, all we can learn from this, I suppose, it, it, uh, I don't want to say it doesn't concern us, but I, I don't think we're going to participate in any way. I think we're going to be out of here. But what we can learn from seeing these details is how to watch for a prophecy to happen. And you can do that, and you're allowed to do that. What would you think if it says tomorrow that Russia has... Uh, um, made a new treaty with Iran to raise horses together. <laughs> I'm just stabbing in the dark, but you see what I mean? Logical pieces of news can come out. Uh, Libya merging with Egypt. Ethiopia buying jet aircraft from Russia. Uh, these alliances taking shape. As they do, the day of the trumpet comes closer. Well, God's not going to leave us here for that invasion, I don't think, or we would only be momentarily here. But this is the kind, what, I, what I'm trying to impress on you, it's hard to put into words. For 2,600 years, people had to believe in this prophecy to, to, to see anything to it. It had to be a matter of faith. It's now a matter of current events, almost. We can watch it form, and we can be ready for the day of the Lord. Let's pray. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, the Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the Universe. Amen. This concludes Side B. For additional information concerning Liberation Tapes, write to us at Post Office Box 6044, Lubbock, Texas 79413.